Hi. It's not every week you can say, so we've doubled our attendance in one week. That's what school does. Well, and that's what Jesus does, but not but. You get what I'm saying, I hope. That scary moment when you're opening up your notes. I was, just, I was joking about it before, and then the screen goes black, and you get real nervous for a second, and then they come back up, and you're okay. Hi. That sounded really good, guys. That sounded, like, really, really good. I mean, like, like really, really, really good. Like, you sounded, you sounded good. And that makes me happy, because I like things that sound good. So... Question. Say all you could see was my shadow, or the shadow of the person next to you. You, you could probably see the person's shadow next to you better than you can see mine, because mine's kind of going off this direction. So say you can see that person's shadow, and that's all you can see, is their shadow. How much do you think you could determine that you know about them, just based on their shadow? What do you think you could figure out about somebody just by looking at their shadow? What? How big they are. How far away is the light that's next to them that's casting the shadow? What angle is that light coming from? How close are they standing to the place that the shadow is being cast on? So you can generally tell that they're... This kind of a shape, you probably tell if they're wider than they are tall or taller than they are wide. But you really can't tell too much just based off of a shadow. You can't, tell, you can't tell which direction they're facing. You generally can't tell if they're a guy or a girl. You can't tell how tall they are. You can't tell where they come from, how old they are. Can't tell what they're wearing. Can't tell much about them. But I think a lot of what the author of Hebrews has been saying up to this point is, everything that you've been looking at so far has just been a shadow of things to come. He's going to say that more specifically today. And I think Israel, and sometimes us, we get too fixated on the shadow. We see the shadow, we're like, oh look, I can make it look like a dog. I can make it look like, what was the, what was the name of that, that group of people on America's Got Talent like two years ago that like did all these weird, crazy shadow things like they could build themselves into like the Statue of Liberty and they, it was crazy. But they would do all these crazy formations. They come up with these really interesting looking shadows. But that didn't tell you anything about them. That just said we can make our shadows look like whatever we want them to look like. They're just... They're just a shadow. They're not the real, they're not the real thing. They're not the real person. Um, and, and if that shadow is the only thing that you had to look at, say, say all I ever was was a shadow, or all you ever saw about me was a shadow, you might start to think that's all that he really is, or that's all that it really is. And I think that Israel, at some point, had been given a shadow, something that's made by, represented by some reality, and they got fixated on the shadow. They got distracted by the shadow. And they started to think the shadow was all that there was ever going to be. The shadow was the, shadow was the reality. And the reality is that shadow didn't fully represent anything. It was just a picture. It was just a glimpse. Right? So go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. 
If you haven't been with us, and several of you haven't, we've been going through Hebrews since just after, just after Easter. And we're going to be going through the, this book up until the end of the year, up until the new year. I think our last week in this is going to be January 4th or something like that. So we're slowly working our way through the book of Hebrews. And this whole time, the author of Hebrews has been building this case that Jesus is better than various things. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better as a high priest, which is where we've been lately. He's been building this case that Jesus is our better high priest. And that he serves as a perfect high priest um, over a priesthood that was Imperfect, And the case that he's beginning to build is that we're seeing God institute not only just a new priesthood, but an entire new covenant. A whole new way of thinking about how God wants to interact with his people, how God wants to draw his people to himself. And so as we get into chapter 8 this morning, um, we've just come off this idea that we're changing to a new priestly order. The, the, the Levitical priesthood served its purpose, but it's time for it to be replaced. And he's been building this case that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This guy that Abraham submitted to as an authority. He said, this guy is over me. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek saying, everything that I am and everything that follows under me submits to this other priestly order. So, so we've been building the case that Jesus is a better priest of a better priesthood. And as we start getting into chapter 8 this morning, we're going to start to see all the different details that Jesus' priesthood and the new covenant that kind of surrounds Jesus' new priesthood, all the intricate details that God is saying, all of these things are better. And he's going to give us a clearer understanding of why he did things the way he did during the Old Testament and through the Old Covenant as well. So let's go ahead and read here. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. In Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So there's a bunch of stuff in here. There's a lot of little details. Some of these are details that the author's kind of talked about up at this point. And if you've been here as we've been going through this, you're going to have an idea of what he's talking about in there. But we're going to go through all of these. So we're again reminded of Jesus' high priesthood, but now we're given a bit of a more significant look at the details. The details that are surrounding his priesthood. What that priesthood looks like. And it starts right off saying in verse 2, he is a minister in the holy places. So Jesus was and is a minister. That's a, that's a slightly different term than we've used to describe him up to this point. 
So Jesus is a minister. So we've got to ask a couple of questions. What is his ministry? What is Jesus' ministry? If Jesus says, I am going to minister to you, how does he do that? What are the things that he does for us? Well, it says right here in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So, so part of Jesus' ministry is to offer gifts and sacrifices for us. Now if you know how the old priesthood worked, the old covenant priesthood worked, obviously these guys were having to make sacrifices for their own sin so that they could make sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. So, so constantly the job of the priest was ongoing. Every day making sacrifices to atone for themselves and for the sins of the people. Because God really cares about holiness. He's not going to let you enter into his presence if you are not yourself holy. Because he is so holy. So as by virtue of being our high priest, Jesus is also supposed to serve us by offering gifts and sacrifices. Now, now we know from looking at the life of Jesus that he doesn't daily offer a sacrifice for himself or for us. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all, and he himself was the sacrifice. Right, because it says in the end of verse 3, thus it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. So, so if the priest is going to offer a sacrifice for himself, he has to provide his own sacrifice. Jesus didn't even need a sacrifice, yet he himself became the sacrifice for us. And only Jesus would have been capable of offering himself as a sacrifice as a means of finding salvation for all of us. Only Jesus is capable of doing that. Only Jesus is capable of ministering to us in a way that the gifts and the sacrifices that he offered cleanse perfectly. They don't have to be repeated over and over and over again. It was done once and it was done forever. Jesus' sacrifice was more perfect than any sacrifice that had ever been offered and could ever be offered. So Jesus' ministry is to offer us gifts and sacrifices. Also, it says that Jesus is a better mediator. So he mediates for us. This is down in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. What's a mediator? <coughs> Somebody yell what a mediator is. I know Daniel knows the answer. He already go preached about mediating. What? Go a go-between. Yeah. What, what, is, what is a common job that serves as a mediator a lot of times? A judge. A judge. What else? An ambassador. Hmm? An ambassador. Uh, yeah, counselors, I think they mediate. And, and, and when a human is mediating something, when a judge is mediating something, when a counselor is mediating something, when an ambassador is, is trying to mediate a discussion between two different parties, what is their objective? If you're the mediator, what is your goal? What should your goal be? Let's go with that. What should your goal be? Agreement. Agreement? You want to come out with Equal benefit to both sides. That's the ultimate goal. So, so if I am, if, if Tucker and Tim are in the middle of a fight, I'm not going to take bets on who's going to win. Because I really don't know who would win. That would be a really good fight. They're my brothers, if you don't know. They're my little brothers. So, so if, they're, if they're in the middle of a fight over, I don't know, the Xbox controller. That sounds... That sounds as realistic as that sounds as realistic as anything. So they're fighting over the Xbox controller. 
It is in the mediator's interest. Whoever's going to step in and try to, to keep this fight from continuing. To figure out, how can I best benefit both parties here? How can we come to some sort of agreement that both feel like they have been justly dealt with? Does that usually happen when we're mediating for something? No. Typically, it's going to sway on one side or another. It's going to, it's going to benefit somebody more than another because, because we're not perfect. We are not able to perfectly mediate when there's you know, some sort of struggle between two parties. Somebody is probably going to end up winning, if that makes sense. But what he says here in verse 6 is that Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So when Jesus mediates, he is, he is bringing us into the presence of God. Something that we've already said is really dangerous for someone like us to be brought into. Because, because if we go into the presence of God, we are unholy. We ought to be struck down right there. But only Jesus, only, listen to this, only Jesus is capable of bringing us into the presence of God and God not being tainted by our sin because Jesus is able to perfectly cleanse us from our sin. He is able to rescue us from our sin. No one side is better off. Well, I mean, I'd say proportionally we're better off because we're getting to hang out with God and he's just getting to hang out with us. But, but it's, it, it, it's, it's perfectly mediated because God is not stained with our sin and we are made holy instead. So that we are able to peacefully be in the presence of God. And only Jesus is capable of taking away our sin in that way. Taking our sin onto himself through that perfect sacrifice that he was able to offer once for all. To never be repeated. To never have to be taking place again. It was done. Only Jesus is able to take away our sin so perfectly that we can come into the presence of God. We can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And not die on the spot. Because God is holy and we are not. That, that's not going to happen. Because Jesus is able to perfectly save us. So, so when you're sitting here wondering about something that's happened in your life. Or something that you've done. Or the person that you are and you're thinking. There is no way that I could step into the presence of God. There is no way that I deserve to be welcomed into the body of Christ. Because I know who I am and I know what I'm capable of. Jesus mediates a perfect covenant. Those people, he says, are his. Those people that he, he welcomes in, that he draws to himself, he cleanses them perfectly. Only Jesus can do that. You can't, you can't be freed from the stain of your sin apart from Jesus freeing you from it. Which is why it's so cool that we're sitting here seeing this over and over again. Jesus is better at doing this. Jesus is better at doing this. Only, it's, it's not because Jesus is better because there are other okay options. It's because Jesus is the only option. Jesus is the only one who can offer a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus is the only one who can perfectly take away our shame and bring us into the presence of God. He's the only one who can do that. And that is why his ministry is better. That is why he is a better minister. That is why he is capable of doing that. So, so that is what his ministry is. Mediation and, and sacrifice to take away our sins. Where does his ministry take place? Because it even says in here, if he were on earth, he could not serve as a priest. And we talked a little bit about this last couple of weeks. Why couldn't he serve as a priest here on earth? 
I know somebody knows the answer. Because he's what? Because he's not a Levite. He's not. What tribe was Jesus from for bonus points? There you go. Good. So Jesus from the tribe of Judah, meaning according to the old covenant law, he couldn't serve as a priest, which is why it's so difficult, I think, for the Hebrews to wrap their brain around the idea that he is a priest of a better priesthood. He is he can be a priest and be from the tribe of Judah because it is a completely different system. We're changing the whole system here when Jesus serves as our priest. So, so if he couldn't serve as a priest here, where is he serving as our priest? That's, that's, a good, that's a good answer. It's a good Sunday answer. Sunday morning. This one's easy. Where does he serve as our priest? In heaven. Right. He's serving as our priest in heaven. <clears throat> so, what does that mean? What does that look like? Does anybody want to explain exactly what heaven is to me real quick? Because, man, I was looking at some stuff and there's a bunch of... Uh, I ended up reading a bunch of Plato stuff, Plato's philosophy. Um, and, and if you know, does anybody here know a lot about Plato? Oh man, then I better stop talking right now because I don't. <laughs> and I'm going to embarrass myself real fast. But from what I could tell, Plato believed that basically anything that was actually physical was basically bad and broken and imperfect. And anything that was only spiritual, only kind of not tangible. That's the only things that could be perfect. So when we talk about Jesus, physical body ascending from, from earth to heaven to serve as our, our high priest, to sit at the right hand of God in his physical body, Plato would have said, there's no way that could happen. That's not real. That's not good. But in fact, that's the way that Jesus represented himself. He, he physically left here and he physically went to a physical heavenly realm. You may be saying, why don't we know where it is? Probably because we're not supposed to. And that's the best answer I can give you. But we know that it's a real place. Because in here in chapter 8, it quotes, which one? It quotes uh, Exodus 25, verse 40. And this is in verse 5. Talking about the temple, the tabernacle. These places where the old covenant priesthood has been being acted out this whole time. It says, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What a lot of guys are suggesting is that God actually like opened up the window to look into heaven and showed Moses, here's what the temple really looks like. Here's what the place that the real priest is going to serve actually look like, looks like. Make sure when you build something on earth that it is an accurate representation of it. The tabernacle, I think, was actually based on, and then the temple thereafter, was actually based on a physical, real temple that exists in heaven that God gave Moses a glimpse of. And when you read all the descriptions of the temple uh, in the Old Testament... What's kind of the idea that they try to get across about it? That it was awesome. Right? What was it? The mortar was even made of gold so that when people came and finally knocked it down, they actually took every brick off so that they could melt the gold down and take it with. You know, this thing was amazing. And what he's saying here is that is just a shadow, just a copy of the real temple in the heavenly places. 
So Jesus serves in a physical place. He serves as our priest in a real place that, that he says we will actually be welcomed into. It's not just this kind of spacey idea that we think about and it makes us feel good. We're all going to kind of float around on clouds while playing our harps and that sort of thing. It's a real place where we're going to get to go and actually worship God in the presence of God as his people. So we can't just get fixated on this, this little building that we've built here that, we th- that, that, that the Jews thought was the end-all, be-all place. That was the place. That was it. That was as good as it's going to get. So that when people come in and destroy it, they think, we're destroyed. We have nothing left. So he's, he is ministering for us perfectly in a perfected temple, in a real place. So why do we need a new ministry? I kind of like the way that verse 7 puts it. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We need a new covenant. There is a new covenant, so we need a new covenant, is basically what he's saying. Because there's something new, we obviously need something new. Uh, I I kept, every time I kept reading this, it's like, newer is better. I kept going back to that one episode on How I Met Your Mother. Or he's like, newer is always better. Newer is always better. And they go on about that for like 20 minutes, trying to argue whether or not newer is always better. But in this case, newer is better because obviously we needed to replace the old one because there was a new one. That's basically how he's explaining it. We need to replace the new one because we need to replace the old one because there's a new one. We don't replace something that's already perfect. If it's perfect, there was no need to replace it. That's why we say when something has lasted a long time that it stands the test of time, right? There was, there was no... What's, what's the one phrase when you're trying to do something that you don't really need to because there's already a solution for it? What's, what's that colloquial phrase that we always use? Don't reinvent the wheel. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. The wheel works. There's not another shape that we're going to find that's going to help us roll a car down the street any better. It works. The, the concept behind it is sound. So there's no need to replace it. By virtue of God saying, I'm going to institute a new covenant, he's saying the old covenant wasn't perfect. wasn't perfect to accomplish the purposes that I have for the world. Because if they were, there would be no reason for him to replace it. Because like he said in verse 5, the old ministry was only ever a shadow or a copy. And what are the things that he's been saying the whole time we've been building through this book? The Levitical priesthood, it was just a shadow of the Melchizedek priesthood that Jesus is under. The sacrifices that the priests offered were just a shadow of the perfect sacrifice that Jesus was going to offer of himself. The tabernacle, the temple, they were just a shadow of the perfect sacrifice heavenly realm where Jesus is acting out his ministry. The old covenant is just a shadow of a new covenant, a better covenant, a perfect covenant. The target demographic of the old covenant, which was Israel, that was just a shadow of God's ultimate purpose, the real demographic that he's trying to reach with the new covenant, which is all nations, the world, everybody. They're all just small groups or small examples to give us an idea of what God's true intentions truly were. 
And the Old Covenant was never intended to fully accomplish God's ultimate plan. God's ultimate plan was that every tribe, every tongue, every nation know him, sing his praise. And the Old Covenant wasn't meant for that. We talked a little bit about that last week. It was just there to kind of hold the world over until Jesus came and actually fixed everything. Till Jesus came and actually took away sin permanently. Till Jesus came and actually was able to welcome people into the presence of God without them dropping dead on the spot because of his holiness. Only Jesus would have been able to make us pure enough to enter the presence of God. So everything, and what, and what the author's trying to say here to, to his audience is that you have gotten too fixated on this old covenant. You've made this old covenant the end-all, be-all. You've made this the thing that God's ulti- was always God's ultimate purpose. And it was never intended that way. It was never intended that you get so fixated on the shadow and you miss what the reality was. And the reality was that Jesus was coming to make everything perfect. You got too fixated on the band-aid. But there's actually a healer who was coming behind it. When you think of heaven, and you think of, say, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all of those things. This is the way I always thought of it until I read something this week while I was studying for this. I always thought of it as, these places are going to be a perfected version of what we have on earth. Right? Who thinks of it that way? Like, like heaven is going to be everything that we have made perfect. Made clean, fixed, made the way it should be made. But that's not the point. Everything that's here was made as a broken, not quite right version of what already existed. Heaven was already perfect. And everything that we see here is just a shadow of that. God's not going to take this and make it perfect in that sense. We're actually going to get to go experience the perfect that was always there. We're going to get to experience the, the, the original intent, which was that God welcomes his people into his perfect creation. And then they get to spend eternity together glorifying God. That's, that was always the intent. The intent was not that, that this, this band-aid of an old covenant just kind of get us by for all eternity. It was always to get back to that original perfect creation where we could walk and talk with God and live life together as his people. The old covenant was, was, was just a copy. We have to learn to distinguish, and this is, this is the thing, we have to learn to distinguish between what's a copy and what's the reality. What's the shadow and what's the thing that's casting the shadow. Because sometimes we tend to get too fixated on the tangible thing that's right in front of us and not what God's ultimate purpose is for whatever it is we're experiencing. With, with Israel, they got so locked in on the temple, so locked in on the Levitical priesthood, so locked in on the system of sacrifice, so locked in on the law, that they missed the point that they were broken and they needed an actual Savior who could reconcile them to God. They missed that point. They got locked in on all the other stuff that they were called to do. The ways that they were incapable of actually living apart from Jesus making them able to. 
They, they didn't, they, they lost sight. They, they, they locked in on the copy, the shadow, the representation of the real deal, right? Jesus is the real deal. And, and sometimes we get locked in on the, I've got to do this. I've got to make sure I'm in church. I've got to make sure I'm tithing. I've got to make sure that I'm, I'm doing something at the church so that they, they don't think that I'm not involved. I've got to make sure that I at least talk to three people about Jesus every third Wednesday. And, I, you know, and we get locked in on these things. But if we just get locked in on Jesus, all the rest of that stuff is going to happen anyways. So how do we distinguish between a copy and a reality? So, okay, so we went to the beach a month ago, something like that, um, and I, I would have been smart to have brought a picture, because then this, this whole analogy would hold together a whole lot easier. So imagine that I have this really awesome picture of the beach. There it is. That's the picture of the beach. You can see it, right? You can see the beach. You all can see the beach. I know you all can see the beach. And I, and I can say, man, look at that sand. Look at, look at how soft that sand feels. And that water, it was so warm. Look at it. It's amazing. And there was this breeze blowing, and it was fantastic. And occasionally the clouds would come over, and we'd cool off a little bit. And, man, we built this sand castle, and we dug a moat for like an hour, and then Ellie kicked all the sand back in it. And we were like, why would you do that? We've been working on this for a long, long time. And she said, because it's fun. And then I'm going to stomp on it. And I can show you that. And a couple of years ago, I could have showed that picture to Ellie, described it to her, and she would have been amazed. She would have just sat there and been like, this is an awesome picture. I just want to sit here and look at this picture. But I don't think any of us in here want to take a week off of work and just look at my picture. Does anybody want to take a week off work and just look at a picture of the beach? Why? Because we know what it's like to actually walk in the sand. We know what it's like to actually get out in the water. We know what it's like to actually build a sandcastle. We know what it's like to, to just lay out and relax and have the breeze hit us in the face. We know the smell of the ocean, right? You can go back there because we've experienced it. And once you've actually experienced the beach, the copy, the picture, isn't good enough anymore. The picture's good until you've actually been there. I couldn't just say, all right, Ellie, we're going to the beach. Here's a picture. She'd be like, no, no, I want to go to the beach and I want to play in the sand and I want to swim in the water and I want to eat 17 scoops of chocolate ice cream and then I want to run in circles, screaming. That's what she'd say. How do we know the difference between the shadow, the representative of Jesus, the thing that's pointing us towards Jesus, and the real Jesus. You have to experience Jesus. How do, we, how do we know what's just kind of an example of what real church community looks like and what the real deal is? You have to experience real church community. You have to, you have to get in there and you have to like get, dig your toes into the sand and walk out into the water and, and feel the breeze hitting your face. You have to truly experience who Jesus is to really understand the whole point of what that whole old covenant was. If you just keep looking at this old covenant saying, there's all these things that I can do, you miss the purpose of why they were there. They were there to get us to who Jesus is, to show us who Jesus is and what he was going to do for us and what he did do for us and what he is now able to do through us and for us. 
So you have to experience Jesus. When you really experience Jesus, you're going to know what's real and what's not. We'll walk up and down the streets here on Saturdays, and we'll talk to people, and occasionally somebody will say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I'll talk to them, and, and they'll talk, and we'll be like, well, tell us about, tell us about that, and that sort of thing. We'll be talking, and you'll walk away, and you'll be like, they don't know Jesus. Because, because I've experienced Jesus, and that's not what an experience with Jesus really looks like. That's not what it really sounds like. That's not what you say to somebody after you had a real experience with Jesus. Because when you've had a real experience with Jesus, you say, I was broken. I had nothing. I am nothing. I am only what Jesus makes me. I, I have all of this sin in my life. And Jesus has taken away the shame of that sin. I don't have to worry about that sin anymore because Jesus has taken it away. Jesus is ministering to me because he was a sacrifice for me once and for all. Now he is actively serving as my priest, as my mediator to God. Right now, in a real place, really sitting at the right hand of a real God who is welcoming me into his presence and is putting me into a church so that I can build community and go on mission to make people realize that there is something better than the shadow or the copy that they're looking at and thinking that's everything. I've experienced the real beach and now I want to take somebody with me. I don't want to just go to the beach by myself. That would be lame. I want to take a bunch of friends and we'll go build a huge sandcastle. A big thing. We'll have, we'll have, we'll get a grill and we'll, we'll grill out and we'll We'll like hamburgers and hot dogs and we'll sit there on the beach and we'll just, we'll just enjoy life together. I, I want more people to go on that experience with me. It wouldn't be fun just by myself. I'd burn. <laughs> In like 10 minutes. Because that's who I am. Because I'm not perfect and neither is my skin. So we have to have a real experience with Jesus. I want you to have a real experience with Jesus. I don't want you to just sit back and think that everything that you're doing right now, everything, like just sitting here, listening to me talk, singing a few songs, and then leaving. That's, that's not really it. Really experiencing Jesus means coming to grips with who you really are and who he is and what he has done to give you the opportunity to be in his presence and not be struck down dead by the holiness of God. Right? So, so, look at your own life. This might be something that you could talk about in your community groups this week. What is something in your life that you fixate on that distracts you from the reality of who Jesus is and what you ought to be doing for him? What, what are the shadows in your life that you treat like they're the real deal and they're the end all be all? What are those things? And then let's... Let's figure out how do we get away from those things and run straight towards the reality of who Jesus is. Chase after him. Be more like him. Find what his will is and, and follow it. Go after it. Get after it fast. And if you don't know him, you've got to know him. You've got to experience him before any of this stuff is going to make sense. The whole old covenant is not going to make sense. The whole new covenant is not going to make sense until you've experienced Jesus. You have to experience Jesus to know what the real deal is. And so that's what I'm going to be praying for here now. I'm going to be praying 
that those of us that know Jesus would run after Jesus and run away from these other copies and these other things that aren't really him. And for those of us that don't know him, I'm going to pray that we, we experience him for real for the first time. And that you really get to dig your toes into the sand and really see what it feels like to be there. <coughs> and then we're going to sing. And we're going to celebrate who Jesus is and the reality that he is greater than we are and that we should, we should proclaim that loudly as the church. So let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being the one reality that we can count on. The one, the one real thing. God, I pray these things that we, that we hold on to, that we rely on, that are, that are just fake, that are, that are just copies, that are just shadows, that you would, you would highlight them in our lives. You would show us, what are the things that I'm fixating on when I should be fixating on your son? And I pray that you would break us from that. You would, you would, you would cause us to be broken over it, that we would feel the guilt of not magnifying your son not appreciating the work that he's done and continues to do for us. God, I pray for those of us that have not yet experienced Jesus, that we would experience him right now. That you would, you would rip out hearts of stone and give new hearts of flesh that beat for Jesus. God, I pray that you would, you would welcome new people into the church even right now, because you can and I pray that you would. God, I pray that we would just magnify your son right now. That we would, we would celebrate him in a way that only people who have been saved by him, who have been redeemed, can. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to sing. <coughs> Loud is good. We're going to take communion. And when you come up here to take communion, remember... We're remembering the sacrifice that Jesus offered. And when we take that, we're saying we're in it with him. We're, we're bought in. We're not running away. We're not chasing after shadows. and We're not chasing after copies. We're running to Jesus. The offering plate's over there on the counter if you want to go leave your tithes and offerings. But, but the big deal is make sure that we are experiencing Jesus, that we're focusing on Jesus, who he is, and that we're celebrating how remarkable it is that he welcomes us into his family.